James chapter 5. James chapter 5. We're starting to wind down our study in the book of James, getting closer and closer to the end. But this morning, I want to look at verses 7 through 12, and we want to look at living or live looking up. Live looking up. Sometimes people say, well, you've got to keep your eyes on the ground. You might, not, you might find some money on the ground. But uh, uh, we need to live looking up and let the Lord provide. And uh, we'll s- see what James has to say concerning how we ought to live. Uh, in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5, James addresses the problems of oppressors. In verses 7 through 12, he addresses the oppressed. And he challenges us to live with an expectation, an exhortation, and examples that will help us to live looking up. Notice with me the first uh, of those three, the expectation of the Lord's coming. In verse 7, it says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord, Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. But ye also, be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Now he's addressing the importance of the second coming of Christ. And this message involves several elements. The first one is that it's a clear message. It was a clear message. Uh, this was James, James's first reference, really, to the second coming of Jesus Christ. But in the Bible, you will find 1,835 references to the Lord's second coming. There are 300 references to it in the New Testament, and that means about one out of every 13 verses. So there are three particular words that I want to point out this morning making uh, that make this message, I think, very clear. Uh, by the way, we won't look at all 300 references, okay? Uh, but three words, I think, that make this a clear message. First of all, it's the word coming. Now the word there, and I'll give you the, the Greek word, just for reference, parousia, which was used to describe the arrival of the emperor or the king or uh, maybe the dad in the home, right? I was giving uh, uh, Bryce a hard time about calling his dad king uh, earlier this morning. But uh, this is what this word means. It means uh, uh, the arrival of a king or, or an emperor, And it was also used to describe the invasion of a country by an army. It would be John uh, who would use this word in the epistle of 1 John 2.28. It says, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and be not be ashamed before him at his coming. Uh, The Lord Jesus is coming. He's going to be our king. 
And so this is the reference of his coming. Jesus will return to this earth to set up his kingdom. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's going to come, and it could be soon. Maybe today. Uh, We do not know that, but uh, Jesus is coming. We do know that because God's word says he is. So the word coming. The second word is appearing. This word, epiphania, uh, is uh, a word maybe a little more uh, uh, familiar because uh, we use it and we have the word epiphany uh, used to speak of the appearance of a God to his worshipers. Well, the Lord is going to appear to his people again. Jesus is God. And Titus 2.13 tells us that we're to look for that blessed hope, the glorious, glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 4.1 says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at the appearing, at his appearing and his kingdom. And then we have a third word, and that's the word appearing. Wait a minute, preacher, that's not a third word. That's the same word as the second. Well, not in the Greek. Uh, it's a little bit different. It's a different word. It's a word, uh, and I don't know if I can pronounce it, but it's akapogalupitz. And uh, if you want to say that three times real fast, I'll give you a, a prize. But uh, it means unveiling uh, or laying bare. Uh, the second coming unveils the power and the glory of God in his full majesty. First Peter 1.7 says that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold uh, that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found under the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So I believe the message is very clear in God's word. Jesus is coming again. So it's a clear message. Secondly, it's a comforting message. Uh, The second coming was not only clear, but comforting to these believers. It is comforting to us, I believe, as well. I trust it is. To think that Jesus is coming, that should be a great comfort to us. The time of suffering is getting shorter for us all. The Lord's return is drawing nigh. His coming really is in two parts. Part one is the rapture in which the saints are going to be removed from this planet in the blink of an eye. The rapture is imminent. And what do we mean by eminent? We mean it could happen at any time. It could happen before I finish this message. The rapture could take place. Romans 13, 12 says, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. 1 Peter 4, 7, But the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Excuse me. First John 2 and verse 18. Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard, the Antichrist shall come. Even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. And then Revelation 22, 20 says, He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. 
Now, the second part of his coming is found in the Revelation, in which Jesus literally steps upon this planet. The first part, he's coming in the clouds. The second part, he's going to step foot on this planet, establish his kingdom. This will take place seven years after the Antichrist establishes a treaty with the nation of Israel. And so it is a comforting message. Jesus is coming to rule and to reign on this earth. So it's a clear message. It's a comforting message. And then thirdly, it was a challenging message. It says here in verse 9, The judge standeth before the door. The words change, you notice here, from the Lord to the judge. And we're all going to meet Christ as the judge. First Corinthians or Second Corinthians chapter five verse ten. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body, whether to uh, to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. First Corinthians three thirteen. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. It was uh, a young man, age 19, a well-known name, perhaps today, George Bernard Shaw, who said, our conduct is influenced not so much by our experiences, but by our expectations. I wish I'd been that wise when I was 19 years old. But I think... He says there, our conduct is influenced by much of our experiences, not by much of our experiences, but by our expectations. Another uh, wise preacher of years gone by said, I preach as though Christ died yesterday, arose from the dead today, and is coming back tomorrow. I wonder, are we looking for the Lord's return? I mean, do we even think about that? Do we, do we get up in the morning and just say, well, here's another day and I got to go to work or I got to do this or I got this planned or I got that planned? What, do, what are our expectations? Jesus told us to occupy until he returns. Yes, we have responsibilities that we have to be about each and every day. Uh, we don't say, well, the Lord might come today, so I'm not going to go to work. <laughs> he's going to come, so I don't need to go to work. No, we have our responsibilities. We still go about our, our duties. But let's think about the fact that he is coming. And this should be a challenge to us. Uh, God help us all to serve him until he returns and until we meet him or until we meet him in death. May we live looking up. Live looking up. The second thing we notice here is the exhortation to be patient. Uh, You say, that's easy to say, isn't it? How many times have we told, just be patient, just be patient, it's going to all work out? Well, James says in verse 7, be patient, therefore, brethren. And then he says, uh, uh, hath long patience for it. Verse 8, be also patient. 
Now, there are really two negatives here and two positive exhortations that are given. Let's, get, let's start with the negative first. The negative exhortations were to, uh, is a warning, first of all, against intolerance. He says here, grudge not one against another brethren. James warns us we're not to grumble at each other. We're not to hold grudges against one another. The word grudge is from a word which means to groan. It denotes a feeling that is internal and may even be unexpressed. Maybe it's a smoldering thing. It's a smoldering anger, could be. Uh, They were grumbling at their suffering circumstances. Uh, They began to then grumble to one another. And that's what Satan's tactic is, is to divide and conquer. You know, if he can get Christians to grumble and to moan and to fight with one another, Satan can defeat them. So James has warned already believers to get along. Can't we just all get along? He warns us that we need to grudge not one against another. Go back to James 4, verse 11. He says, Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. So he's warned us, get along. Warning against intolerance. There's also a warning against irreverence. Skip down to verse 12 of chapter 5. It says, But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven nor by earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. Now here he's making another reference to our tongues. Patience should regulate our life and our lip. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, oaths played a very important part in a Jewish life. An oath is a serious promise. It's a confirmation of a statement which appeals to a higher authority. And the problem of oath-taking had fallen into disrepute. Uh, It was done so frequently that it lost its meaning. Oaths that were binding were ones that where God's name was used in the oath. Oaths that were non-binding were ones that were based upon the heavens or even the hair on a person's head. As some of you know, hair on the head is not permanent. So if you make an oath based on the hair on your head, uh, that's not going to be forever. And some of you know that more than others. But... We should be honest and we should be truthful that no oath is necessary at all. James was not forbidding the taking of an oath in a court of law. He was stressing the importance of being honest and to be truthful. We are also not to take the name of the Lord in vain. We're not to bargain with God and tell him, Lord, you know, I'll do this if you do that. That's a 
very dangerous thing to do. So here you have two negative warnings, one against intolerance, one against irreverence. That brings us to the two positive exhortations. In verse 7 and 8, we first of all have a call for restraint. James says, be patient. It's the command. It's a command. And so it becomes our duty. James uses two different words for patience here in this epistle. The word patient comes from a word which is made up of two words, long and anger. It's a word meaning to be long-tempered or to be a long, a long spirit, not to lose heart, to perse- persevere patiently and bravely in enduring misfortunes and troubles, to be patient in bearing the offenses and the injuries of others. It describes the attitude of self-restraint, and that does not try that which does not try even for an offense or when a wrong has been done to them. It refers to patiently enduring difficult people. While the word patience back in chapter 1 and verse 3 means to patiently endure trying circumstances. So there's a call for restraint. Be patient. Secondly, there's a call for resolution. In verse 8, James challenges us to establish our hearts. The word establish comes from a word which means to take, to make stable, uh, to place firmly, to set fast, to fix, to strengthen, to make firm. I think you get the idea. It's a word that has the idea of resoluteness, firm courage, an attitude of commitment to stay the course, no matter how severe the trials. Now, the root word for this word establish means to cause to stand or to prop up. (coughs) James was exhorting those who were about to crumble under the load of persecution to prop themselves up. They're to hope for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're not to run away from our problems, because, but the Lord, uh, a return of the Lord will cause us to stand unmoved. And we can find uh, the, the Greek word for establish in a number of places in the New Testament. Luke 9, 51, it says, It came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. He steadfastly, that's the same word, uh, set his face to go to Jerusalem. Luke 16, 26, and besides this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. That's the word right there. So that they which should pass from hence to you cannot, neither can you pa- they pass to us. That would come from thence. And then Revelation 3 and verse 2, it says, be watchful and strengthen. That's the word uh, establish. Uh, strengthen the things which remain. God wants us to make up our minds about serving Him. He doesn't want us to be wishy-washy. Uh, so, well, I'll serve Him today, but nah, tomorrow I don't feel like it. We're to be steadfast, strong, fixed in our faith and in our fervency for Christ. James says, the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. 
Those words draweth nigh means it means to bring near, to join together, to approach. Jesus return, uh, when Jesus returns, his prophecy, his promise will be joined with reality and fulfillment. The past and the present will be joined to the future. So that's the expectation of the Lord's coming. That's the exhortation to be patient. And then the examples worth noting. James gives us three examples of people who illustrate patient endurance. The first one is the working farmer. I'm going to illustrate this with my experience with farming back in the great state of Kansas. We uh, had our first church back in western Kansas where they planted winter wheat. And uh, the crop was usually planted around Labor Day. And then we would trust God for the rains to soften the soil and to germinate the seed. The wheat would then go dormant in the winter. It would come up, oh, five or six inches maybe. And then it would go dormant. And the best thing was to have a covering of snow over it. But that, always, that didn't always happen in uh, the dry lands of western Kansas. But it would go dormant, and we would look forward to the spring rain and the warm sun to begin to mature the crop. And the farmer, after all his labor, looked forward to his harvest. And the secret of our endurance is the fact that God is producing a harvest in our lives. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is being developed in us as the sands of the hourglass are of our lives continue to fall. We're not getting any younger, folks, are we? Uh, When our heart is soft and tender, the Lord can work in us and germinate the seed within us. But then when our heart is cold and wintry and hard, it is in need of a continued working in us. And often we get impatient with God. And we tend to get impatient with God's people. So the farmer teaches us there's a need to be patient. We need to be patient, just like the farmer needs to be patient. He can't go out and plant the seed one day and then come back the next day and get the harvest. He's got to wait for it. He can't control the weather. Once he's planted, he's got to wait for the harvest and trust the Lord for its blessing. And we must wait for the Lord's return and trust Him with our lives. That's the first example that James gives us. And then the second example is the persistent prophets. See this in verse 10. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have taken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Now, the prophets endured many, many hardships. Many of the prophets in the Old Testament were men who were persecuted. They were obedient, but obedience does not mean everything's going to go smooth. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. I think of Elijah had to deal with the threats of Ahab and Jezebel. Jeremiah suffered severely 
from being put in the stocks and, and imprisonment in a miry dungeon. He was known as the weeping prophet, not just because of the disobedience of the people of Israel, <coughs> but because of his, the persecution that he suffered. Hosea, you remember our study of Hosea, he endured a heartbreaking marriage. John the Baptist was imprisoned, eventually beheaded. Isaiah was sawn in half. But God took care of these men during their suffering. He brought them home when their task was completed. You see, the will of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you. Let me say that again. The will of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you. Acts 7.52, which, which of the prophets have not their your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them, which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom they have been now the betrayers and murderers. Matthew 5.11, blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. And so we have the working farmer, the persistent prophets, and we have the patience of Job. In verse 11, it says, Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, and the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Job persevered in spite of trials. The book of Job is a book about persevering through suffering. The first three chapters you find out about his distress, how he loses his wealth and his health and his family. In chapters 4 through 31 is about his defense. He debates with his so-called three friends and answers their false accusations. In chapters 38 through 42 is about his deliverance. As God restores Job's health and gives him twice as much as he had before. Just notice a few examples that show his steadfastness as God's reward for his faithfulness. In Job 1, verse 20 and 21, Then Job arose rose, and rent his uh, mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped, and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In chapter 13, verse 15, it says, Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him, but I will maintain mine own ways before him. In Job 42, verse 10, And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends, and also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. You see, Job was a man who was, had learned to live looking up. He found out that the Lord was very pitiful. That's not the way we use that word today. We say, that's pitiful. You know, that's disgusting. No, the Lord was pitiful. He had pity on him. It showed the Lord's love and his... Uh, provision for him. And that's the only place where you'll find those words in the New Testament here in 
James chapter 5, verse 11. The Lord is very pitiful. And then it says that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. The phrase in one word in the Greek means many-bowled, reflecting the Hebrew idiom which speaks of the bowels or the intestines or the stomach of a person as the seat of their emotions. To say that God is many-bowled meant that he had enormous capacity for compassion. The Lord is full of compassion. And that's a great attribute of the Lord. So let me sum up this portion of this study. All the way through the scripture, we're taught that we're to live in light of the coming of Christ. It would be very embarrassing if the Lord should come while we're sitting uh, in judgment on someone else. You suddenly find yourself in his presence and he is judging you. And so what James is saying is set your house in order. Get your affairs straightened out before he comes. Because he's going to straighten them out if you don't. It's very important for us as believers to realize this. James tells us that the prophets are an example to us. They suffered and they were patient. James spoke of the patience of Job. And as we read through the book of Job, you'll find that he was very impatient. But he learned patience. And you find the Lord is full of pity and compassion, and he's merciful. And then finally, James is saying that when you say you're going to promise something, it ought to be as if you were in a courtroom, and you had taken an oath to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You see, all of our conversations should be like that. All of our lives should be just like that, as if we're taking an oath In a courtroom, we're going to tell the truth. So our lives ought to be honest and truthful. Many times it's not like that, is it? People have broken their word through contracts, marriage vows, promises. Uh, You don't know if people mean what they say today. You used to hear that saying, a man is as good as his word. And we don't uh, put much faith in a man's word anymore. I don't know how many people have said to me, see you on Sunday. And they never show up. Well, I didn't really mean. And then they hem-haw around and come up with some excuse for not doing what they said they would do. You see, James is saying we ought to be people of our word. We ought to be honest. We ought to be forthright people. We ought to be people that can be depended upon no matter what happens. See, I don't believe many of us are really living by looking up. We're not living in light of the Lord's return. Because if we were, I think we'd be living much different than we are. Are you looking for Christ's return this morning? Well, then let's live like it. Let's pray. Father in heaven.